Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of For the Record with Tess Hurd. I'm Tess Hurd, and this is For the Record. I hope that you all are having an incredible week and an even more incredible Monday. I know it's a weird day to drop a podcast, at least for me, but thank you guys so much for understanding. I hope that this podcast finds you well this week and that your weekend was truly wonderful. We're going to skip all the pleasantries, though, and go straight into Trial Day 21. The reason that we are not covering Trial Day 20 is because I was having a horrible mental health day on Monday and did not watch the trial and did not go back to rewatch the trial. So we are picking up on Day 21 and going through Day 24. So without further ado, let's hit day 21. The first on the stand was Dr. Santana Rojas, or otherwise known as Dr. Santana. Dr. Santana worked at Nemours Children's Hospital as a pediatric pain management doctor. She is now the director of pain medicine at Nemours. She rarely treats CRPS and she has treated it even less in children. She said that Nemours in Orlando is one of the few places that has an actual pain clinic in the area. So basically, Dr. Santana's testimony was saying that she had received a call from Johns Hopkins in the early days of Maya's stay while at Johns Hopkins. They wanted to transfer her to Nemours for their pain program, but Maya did not meet the requirements for their program. When Beata asked if they could do an intrafecal pump placement, or as what I call it, a pain pump, she was told that they didn't do this kind of treatment at Nemours. So there were several phone calls from Johns Hopkins to Nemours Children's Hospital. She talked to Johns Hopkins several times. She talked to Beata several times. But all in all, they ended up not being able to do it. Nemours Pain Clinic was an outpatient program. So Maya would go from about 8 or 9 a.m. to around noon. Monday through Friday and then not have to go on the weekends. But because of Maya's severity of her CRPS, it wasn't a good fit for her. And with Beata wanting the pain pump placed, they really just weren't gonna take her as a patient. I really was disappointed with Dr. Santana's testimony. She had been sitting in the courtroom as a representative of Johns Hopkins, and so she was able to get a lot of the testimony and everything, but she really was just kind of boring. There wasn't any mic drop moments or anything like that. Another thing, there was no cross-examination, and there were no jury questions. So there wasn't really anything that tipped the scales in the defense's favor with this witness. Next up, they showed a deposition of Dr. Kelly Laurie from 
Lori's Children's Hospital. Dr. Lowry believed that Maya had a conversion disorder and that was pretty much all she had to say about that. Her deposition was only a few minutes and that's pretty much all that she said in her video. Next up on the stand was Dr. Elliot Crane. Dr. Crane has a good background in profession and in education, but I have a lot of problems with his testimony. First of all, he never even examined Maya. He never saw her. All he did was look at the medical records and files. And his biggest qualm with everything was that the doses of ketamine being given to Maya, in his opinion, were entirely too high and that she was experiencing complications from those doses. However, all of her lab work and blood work, which she got done regularly with her infusions, were coming back as normal. But he also said that he did not think that Maya had CRPS because it's complex regional pain syndrome, meaning it's in one place. Sometimes it can move from like one leg to another, or maybe from a leg to an arm, but he has never in his career seen it go from one leg to all over the body. My thing is, aren't there unusual cases of diseases and disorders and conditions that happen all the time? I mean, I'm kind of rare. I'm one of the most like insulin resistant diabetics that my doctor has ever seen before and I have the worst diabetic retinopathy that my retina specialist has ever seen before. So if they can see something like that, then how come this guy can't see that maybe my CRPS was a little bit more severe? Probably because he thinks that she doesn't have it, but that's another story. He also said that he could tell if someone had CRPS by listening to them cough over the phone, which I thought was just a load of complete and utter monkey doo-doo, but yeah. So that's really all that I have to say about Dr. Elliot Crane. He can go back to reviewing files now. On day 22, the first witness was a nurse whose name is Lisa Reek, or maybe Reck. I can't remember how it was pronounced, but she was Maya's, one of Maya's bedside nurses, and she seemed like such a sweetheart. Oh my goodness, her demeanor was so calm and collected, and she was just so sweet. She basically was there to just help take care of Maya. And I believe that she genuinely tried to help take care of Maya. She would go in there and brush her hair and help her get dressed. She would encourage Maya to do her arts and crafts and try to help lift her spirits when she was having a bad day. If she was having a bad day, then she would, you know, do like braid her hair and do her nails and said that they would have like these little mini spa days. And because Maya was in the hospital for so long, she said that her and a lot of the other nurses really got close with her and really bonded with her. And whenever Christmas came around, the nurses had a cookie 
contest. And so each nurse would bake a dozen cookies and they would all come in and do a cookie swap. Well, this time they had Maya be the judge of their cookie contest and pick the winner. Well, Maya picked her favorite cookie and then the nurse brought in a dozen cookies and gave it to Maya. And it was just a really sweet thing. This nurse also would, if Maya was running low on clean clothes, she would take the she would take Maya's clothes home and wash them and then bring them back to her so Maya wouldn't have to wear a hospital gown. One of the juries asked if she thought that this was overstepping or crossing a line. And I think to a degree, maybe, but at the same time, I also think that this nurse had really good intention and wasn't trying to cross any lines. She was just trying to do whatever she could to make Maya as comfortable as possible. So again, I really don't think that this witness hurt the defense's case any, but I also don't think that it helped it any either. I think that it just showed that in this hospital, just like with any health setting, any healthcare setting, there's going to be people who are there to genuinely help people. And then there's going to be people who are only there for a paycheck. And then there's going to be other people who are just not cut out for this line of work and have no business being in the healthcare setting. And we'll get to that person here shortly. Next on the stand was the CEO of Johns Hopkins All Children's Hospital, Mr. Anderson. Not to be confused with attorney Mr. Anderson. I'll be honest, I did not watch his testimony because mental health, but it was pretty intense. The cross-examination was really intense. And then the jury questions were even more intense whenever I went back and watched Law and Lumber's recap of everything. Y'all really need to check him out if you haven't already. And also you need to check out Recovery Addict because he is doing live streams every day and he has a Zoom feed to the court and he can hear everything, see everything, and it's just really awesome. That is a plug. So go follow them on YouTube. I'll have their channels linked in the description. So now we're going to move on to day 23. I can't remember the exact order of witnesses because I'm pretty sure they only had two on the stand. One was a nurse and one was the devil herself. Oh, I'm sorry. I mean, Dr. Sally Smith. So first we're going to go over the nurse. I'm pretty sure her last name was Alseed, but I can't remember her first name. For some reason, I don't have notes on her and I don't know why, but her whole testimony was she was in the photos that were taken of Maya whenever Maya was forced to strip down to her bra and shorts and have her photos taken against her will. The nurse in the photos, you can see her hands, and that's all you can see. So they had to figure out who this nurse was just by her hands. And I don't know, I think that might be kind of sketchy. But on, like, direct, she was pretty okay. She was very soft-spoken. She was very calm. She was very quiet. She was just very chill. However, on cross... This poor girl 
I at first I was really just annoyed with her but then whenever I went back and watched it again I really honestly felt bad for her because you could tell that she was so uncomfortable and you could tell that she was scared and that she wanted to say the right things but she also didn't want to say the wrong thing and end up getting fired because she still works at the hospital so it was kind of a hard place for her to be in but she was having a really hard time following Cross and following the questions she kept having to ask Mr. Anderson to repeat his questions and I mean Mr. Anderson is kind of harsh in his Cross so I get it but I don't know I really felt bad for this girl and the jury questions really weren't that intense so we're not going to talk about that but all in all again didn't hurt the defense didn't help the defense we aren't going to spend a good bit of time talking about our next witness though dr sally smith in case i have forgotten to mention this dr sally smith is the doctor who she wasn't necessarily employed by Johns Hopkins at the time, I don't believe, but in the county, she was the only one who was, like, qualified to observe and document, and I really don't know how to explain it, but she was the one, if someone was suspecting that a child was being abused, Sally Smith was the one that would get called. And it was like this for the entire county. So it wasn't just Johns Hopkins. It was all of the hospitals, doctor's offices, everything. She was the one person who did that. And she is... I, I don't even know how to describe her. She is just awful. Not only was her testimony awful in the sense of just being she sounds like a miserable person like she literally sounds like she is unhappy every minute of every day but you could tell because they've shown depositions of her before and she was very cross she was very demanding she was very rude she was very self-centered but then whenever she came in to testify, she was like trying to be all chipper and crap. And that just was not it for her. So she comes up to the stand, first of all. And she has like this bag with her. And she starts pulling out these files. Like she sits down and she's like, hold on just a minute. And she pulls out six different binders. Like the freaking four inch binders and sets them up nice and neatly in front of her and then opens up the top one so she can read what's in the file on the very top one that's it so she's testifying that she had every reason to suspect child abuse she had every reason to believe that Beata was abusing Maya by Munchausen by proxy or I've discovered that it's now called me medical child abuse I didn't know that. I thought that it was still Munchausen by proxy. So she was testifying to that, saying that Maya did not have CRPS, that Maya was improving, that everything was getting better, 
and that she had no regrets doing any of what she did. And that was about it. The jury was, they didn't really have a ton of questions for her. Cross wasn't really anything major. But what they did next is what really showed Sally Smith's true colors. Unfortunately, the jury didn't get to see this, but we did, and I'm going to tell you all about it. So they excused the jury, and they did a proffer, which is an offer of proof, so that if there is an appeal, which according to everybody that I've watched and listened to about this, both sides are probably going to appeal, but at least one side is definitely going to appeal without a doubt. So they do these offers of proof for the appellate court. Sally Smith got tore up. Oh my goodness, she got tore up. And her demeanor changed. The instant the jury was out of the room, she went from being this chipper person to this complete and utter, like, I can't even say the words that I want to. <laughs> she is just, she's like a, the best way that I can say it is she's like a troll. Not like an internet troll, but like an actual mountain troll that, like, hides up in the mountains and, like, kicks everybody who tries to get into his cave or whatever like oh my goodness just awful absolutely awful so the direct on the proffer was not really anything special but the cross on proffer is where everything kicked up mr anderson was asking dr sally smith questions like isn't it your job to do what's best for the child? And she would answer without really answering. He also asked, if you're going to investigate for potential child abuse, wouldn't you want to get the whole story and put both sides of the story in your report? And she was like, well, no, because if I'm looking for child abuse, I'm not doing my job if someone tells me not to look for child abuse. So she said in her own words, if I'm looking for child abuse, basically admitting that she was in fact looking for child abuse, even though Dr. Kirkpatrick had told her not to question it because there was no child abuse and even though she talked to Dr. Cantu and Dr. Hannah and they didn't say anything about potential child abuse she was just determined to find it. Mr. Anderson asked Dr. Smith if she was aware that none of the psychologists or therapists that saw Maya agreed with her diagnosis of being medically abused by Beata. She said that it didn't matter. It was irrelevant because they weren't looking for it and she was. 
Again, she reiterated the fact that she was looking for it. Now, I understand that if you are suspecting someone of being abused, that you have to look for the evidence of it, right? But the way that she is going about this, it's like she's saying that she is trying to find it, like she is hunting for it, and there's no clear evidence of it. Like, it's some sort of scavenger hunt, and finding any source of abuse is a win for her. And I really don't think that that's the way that this should be. I really don't think that that is how one should go about it. Shouldn't you first see the evidence of it and then take action instead of taking action and then searching for evidence? Dr. Smith also said that even if a psychologist or psychiatrist or therapist has suspected medical child abuse, that it's not their job to write it down in their file or report. Now, I'm sorry, but I thought that therapists were supposed to help people who were going through that kind of stuff. And if something would set off a red flag, aren't they mandatory reporters? Shouldn't that be in their reports? Shouldn't that be in their files? But no, according to Sally Smith, it shouldn't be. So if that's the case, then psychologists and psychiatrists and therapists are really no help at all. She kept going on and on and on about how it wasn't her job to prove that there wasn't child abuse, it was her job to prove that there was. She said that it is her job to present the evidence and that in her opinion, there was without a doubt medical child abuse going on with Beata and Maya and that it was up to the court to decide if her opinion was right or wrong. And I think that because the court decided in the dependency hearing that she was right, she thinks that she's on some kind of high horse and gets to just, I don't even know. Oh my gosh, this lady, she makes me so mad. She also said that everybody else's opinion of what was going on with Maya was just irrelevant. She went on this huge spiel about how all of Maya's doctors were not reliable because of what they did to Maya, because of the amounts of ketamine they gave Maya, because of the way that they decided to treat her CRPS, because of the fact that they were making hundreds of thousands of dollars off of these ketamine treatments. And I'm just sitting here like, you are also a doctor. Aren't you making bank too? Aren't you making bank off of every single child, every single case that you look at, that you investigate, that you look for child abuse for? Isn't that the whole reason you go to work every day is so that you can get your paycheck? Because you obviously aren't going to actually help the kids. You're going so that you can try to rip families apart. Okay. I told you this lady was making me angry. She also tried to say that her opinion based on CRPS literature 
and the few conversations that she had with a couple of anesthesiologists was more valid and more valuable than the plethora of doctors who had examined Maya and had diagnosed her with CRPS. Where, who does this lady think that she is? Where does she come off getting this greater than thou attitude about her medical diagnosis whenever there are people who are more qualified in this particular disorder than she could ever dream of being? I think my favorite part of this proffer, though, is the fact that Mr. Anderson says something along the lines of, you are not a child abuse investigator. You are a child abuse prosecutor. Because an investigator would gather both sides and present it to the judge and let him decide. Dr. Sally Smith's response was, that's absolute nonsense. Huh, much like your testimony, I guess. And then Mr. Anderson asks, And who elected you to be the judge over whether these board-certified physicians were reliable? Mic drop. Oh my goodness, mic drop. Such an amazing moment. And the proffer was basically done after that because there's no recovering from that, honestly. So whenever this does go to the appeals court, I hope that this really just solidifies everything for the plaintiff side because this is just, oh my gosh, so much horribleness from this one person. I am going to have the Law and Lumber stream that is going over this day's trial to where you can watch the proffer of Dr. Sally Smith. I will have that linked in the show notes, so make sure to go check it out because it's something that you definitely really want to see. So with that, we are going to move on to our final day of this trial week, day 24. In comparison, day 24 was pretty chill. There were only a few witnesses and several depositions. But the first witness on the stand was Dr. Jennifer McCain, a pediatric neuropsychologist at Tampa General Hospital. She has a pretty good background of education and profession, so I think that she has a reliable source to testify by using the words of Dr. Sally Smith. She thought that Maya was highly indicative of conversion disorder. She also thought that some of Maya's behaviors were her trying to get Beata's attention because Beata worked so much and was gone a lot. She thought that Maya was exaggerating some of her pain and symptoms so that she could have more attention from her mom. And I get that. I think that that's kind of normal. You tend to exaggerate things whenever you want attention. So, you know, I'm not gonna, I'm, I'm not gonna dog that. But at the same time, I think that there's a line. And I think that 
this line was crossed and not to the side of a conversion disorder. But she did say that Maya had steroid-induced myopathy, myalgia, and myositis. She had quadriparesis, which means muscle weakness, and then a psychological factor affecting a physical condition. So some sort of psychological condition that was affecting some sort of physical condition. That's really all there is about this lady. Not too much else was said. I don't even remember if they crossed her or Next on the stand was Mr. Jason Banker. He is the executive director of Revenue Cycle Revenue Cycle Site Services at Johns Hopkins. Now, whenever Mr. Shapiro started his direct, he accidentally got kind of choked up on his words a little bit, and it made for a really funny moment in court. But he asked how long Mr. Banker had been doing his job because he said he had the habit of quote unquote dating people and the entire court cracked up and he was like no not dating I mean aging I mean I'm not dating we're not dating and then he said something along the lines of I'm really glad this isn't on national tv or anything knowing that it was being streamed and live on all kinds of social media platforms and news outlets so it was just a really funny moment, and I thought that you guys would like to hear about that one. So, Mr. Banker, his testimony wasn't really anything impressive. He was just basically testifying to the billing and coding side of things. Even though he's not a billing and coding person, he oversaw the billing and coding, like, office at Johns Hopkins so he was able to, you know, have a general idea of what the bills and the codes on the bills were for. One of the claims against Johns Hopkins is that the Kowalskis were billed for the treatment of CRPS whenever they were not treating Maya for CRPS. And there wasn't just a whole lot of anything that proved one way or another. Because this guy couldn't 100% testify to the codes that were on the bill. He did say that if Maya wasn't being treated for CRPS, then the insurance would not have accepted the codes for the procedures. But at the same time, I have to wonder, can't they code something that didn't happen? Don't like isn't it kind of like an honor system you have to put what actually happened you can't just you know can you not just fib it because I think that could be likely I mean you see that happen in tv shows and I know that life isn't a tv show but it just makes me wonder I mean codes get mixed up bills are more than what they should be because a wrong code was put down 
So I'm not completely writing this one off. I think it's very possible. The big thing that I want to talk about is one of the jury questions asked about the like billing and coding lingo and they used the exact verbiage that they needed to for the question like they knew exactly what they were talking about whenever Mr. Banker answered this question he looked over at the juror who asked the question and winked and it wasn't just like a oh huh I see you kind of wink it was like a huh I see you kind of wink it was very very uncomfortable but that was about all there was for him okay I know that I said that I wasn't going to talk about the motions and arguments and everything, but this was a moment that happened outside of the presence of the jury during the motions and arguments that I had to tell you guys about because it has gone pretty viral on LawTube. So they were trying to get in evidence for a prescription. And because of the chapter 39 immunity and the 403 or 404, whatever it is, that they can't discuss during this case, they weren't able to bring in both pieces of evidence that they wanted to. And I don't know exactly what it was or why, because they were doing their legalese mumbo jumbo. And I honestly just didn't understand it. So... They finally get done making this argument and then Judge Carroll says to the defense that whenever he goes up to question or direct the witness not to have his papers and his documents up on the podium and have it in his hand and waving it around so that the uh jury could see it mr hunter freaking lost it he looked up at judge carroll and was like truthfully i would have never even considered that and just like snapped on judge carroll he goes and he takes this paper and puts it back on the desk and then it gives judge carroll a death glare if i have ever seen one Judge Carroll is looking at him and is like, Mr. Hunter, please don't look at me like that. And then Mr. Hunter was just like fuming. You could see the rage coming off of him, like the heat off of a black car in the summer in the South. It was obvious that he was just seething. So they finally got that evidence situation settled and judge carroll was like i need five minutes um you could tell that even judge carroll was ticked off to the max so he excuses himself for a few minutes and then whenever he comes back mr hunter is gone and miss carell's is like yeah uh mr hunter excused himself for the rest of the afternoon so i think that tensions just got a little too high and these two butting heads was too much for the entire court. 
I am kind of surprised that he wasn't dismissed or asked to leave or whatever, but I think that's probably one reason why he left on his own accord, because according to several people that I've watched on YouTube, if he would have stayed and he would have kept acting like that, the judge would have had every right and every reason to, I guess, dismiss him. I don't think that's the right word, but I can't think of what the actual word is. So the next witness is a Mr. James Schott. I think that's his name. But he was a pharmacist. He's now retired, but he was working at the pharmacy where Maya got her prescriptions filled. And the whole reason that the defense wanted him to testify was because they thought that he was going to be able to tell them that Maya had several prescriptions for the same drug that were being filled at the same time. She had one prescription for one dose of ketamine, and then she had another prescription for another dose of ketamine. And these were both, I believe, IV ketamine but they were supposed to be taken orally. Like, she was able to take it, they mixed it in with, like, Gatorade or something so she could drink it, and, like, it was a low dose amount. It wasn't something ridiculous or anything like that. But the pharmacist, he could not verify, he could not say that both of the prescriptions had been filled and dispensed. All he could say was that Maya had one prescription for the ketamine and then she had received another one. Whenever she received the, ketam the, the secondary ketamine prescription, it basically canceled out the first one. And as someone who has had a lot of experience going to pharmacies and getting things filled, that's exactly how it happens. If you have one prescription for something and you have to have a higher or a lower dose, you can't get the other one filled after the first one has, or whichever one gets filled, the newest one gets filled, you can no longer get the other one filled. You have to go with the most recent prescription, unless if your doctor sends in another prescription for the previous prescribed dosage or amount or whatever. So that kicked defense in the teeth because that was going to be their ticket to, I guess, this Munchausen by proxy medical child abuse claim or whatever. It was going to show that Maya was being given all this extra unnecessary ketamine because she had double the prescriptions and that fell through the floor and it was it was absolutely great next up was dr hannah by deposition i've heard it pronounced dr hannah and i've heard it pronounced dr hannah i'm gonna say hannah but if it's hannah then please forgive me so dr hannah was the person the doctor in orlando who was giving maya her ketamine infusions after her ketamine coma in mexico so he had given her quite a few ketamine infusions and he would do so over a various amount of hours with various amounts 
And in his depositions, he was talking about how and why he sent Maya to Johns Hopkins whenever she was having her intense stomach pain in October of 2016. She had been in his office the day before with stomach pain, and he had done lab work and everything that could have been an indicator of complications from the ketamine treatments, which has to do with the liver, which could cause intense stomach pain. None of that was showing up on her lab work. So he went ahead and gave her another ketamine infusion over a shorter period of time. That way there would be more in her bloodstream at one time and hopefully it would help relieve the pain. He maxed out what he was able to do for her though. And so whenever she called and wanted another infusion the next day, Dr. Hannah couldn't do anything. He said that if the ketamine hadn't helped her at that point with the way that they did it and the amount that was given, then there was something else going on and that she needed to go to the hospital to be checked out to make sure there wasn't some underlying condition that was causing this pain. It was not because of the ketamine that she was having this severe stomach pain. Something that he said repeatedly was, as a physician, I failed her. As a physician, I let her down because nothing I could do helped her, was going to help her in this moment. And all he wanted was to make sure that there was nothing more severe going on with her. If he could have found out that there wasn't anything else wrong with her by sending her to the hospital, then maybe he could have continued his treatment with her and that would have helped. Or maybe he could have done ketamine treatments in a hospital setting with her where she could have gotten not necessarily a higher dose, but could have had more infusions over a period of time. And that could have helped with her stomach pain. But he couldn't do that in his office setting. So he sent her to the hospital so that she could figure out, one, what was going on to rule out, you know, any kind of issue, appendicitis or some sort of other, you know, stomach problem, and then to see if they could set it up for her to get, you know, a more... the. It was kind of hard for me to follow his deposition because he is, I believe, Indian. So it was hard for me to understand everything that he said. But basically, he wanted her to get checked out, make sure there was nothing more serious going on, and then see if they could give her an infusion over a period of time. So he had tried to get the emergency privileges at Johns Hopkins so that he could go and see her and evaluate her and potentially treat her. He said that he got the paperwork, he filled out the paperwork, he returned the paperwork, he got the approval from the judge, and whenever he went to go to the hospital later that day, they denied him being able to see Maya, even as a visitor. 
in his deposition, the attorney who was asking him questions said something along the lines of, you know, how can you say that this ketamine treatment was successful whenever Maya was in so much pain? And Dr. Hannah just like went off and he was like, you do not know CRPS, sir. You have not treated CRPS patients. I have treated tens of thousands of CRPS patients. I have done hundreds of thousands of ketamine infusions. You have not done this. And it's like you could tell that he was so frustrated with the fact that his methods were being questioned and that you know, someone was trying to say that he was causing harm to a child instead of helping. And you could tell in how he talked about Maya and how desperately he just wanted her to be okay whenever she was in this immense amount of pain and how horrible he felt that what he was doing wasn't enough for her. And that was the whole reason why he sent her to the hospital was because he had exasperated all of his options to be able to help her and there was nothing else he himself could do and in that he felt like he had failed her as a physician and the very last deposition of trial day 24 was from dr bird or burn who worked at lurie's children's hospital i believe but basically she thought that Maya had a conversion disorder and she was shown a whole bunch of documents and notes and records and everything but the majority of what was in those were not her own and so she couldn't really testify to what they said because they were not her own. The only thing that she could testify to was the fact that she thought that Maya had some sort of conversion disorder. She did say, however, that it was possible that Maya had CRPS with a conversion disorder. And that is going to take us into my little rant for the week. If you want to stop here, I don't blame you. But if you want to listen to me rant for a few minutes, then be my guest. Because it's going to be kind of um, spicy. I've gotten a few comments and feedback saying that it's obvious that Beata was medically abusing Maya and that Maya doesn't have CRPS and that the ketamine coma was, you know, too extreme for Maya. And I think to a degree, I can agree with some of that. I think that there were some things that could be considered red flags in certain situations. If you look at someone like Gypsy Rose Blanchard, though, you see that there were a million red flags and nobody questioned it. And there were not nearly as many red flags with Maya and Beata, and yet they ended up in this situation. I do think that maybe the ketamine coma was a little bit too extreme, but I'm not a doctor, so I can't really have a full opinion on that. I can't say if it was too extreme or 
okay. I think that the people who know the disease, who know the medicine, who know what's what, have a much better idea to say what's extreme and what isn't. And I'm not trying to argue with these people. I'm just saying that I think that we need to look at things a little bit more objectively. And I'm even trying to look at the defense side objectively, which is why I say that I think that some of these things could be seen as red flags. I do have some friends who say that if their child was in this situation, that they would go like complete bonkers if their child was in this kind of pain and they were being accused of medically abusing their child and if they were separated from their child they would likely take their own lives too if they thought that that was the way that they could bring them home so I don't have that mother's instinct I don't have that mother's intuition to protect my child because I don't have a kid but I think that you know there there were things to look at that maybe could possibly look suspicious if there wasn't any sort of diagnosis and medical records because if you think about it in comparison with Gypsy Rose Blanchard there were no medical records the only thing that they had for Gypsy Rose was what her mother said. At least in this instance with Beata and Maya, there were actual documented records. There were actual documented diagnoses. There were actual things that said this is what it is. Not just what Beata told the doctors and would make up some excuse about how, you know, the medical records got destroyed in a hurricane. And that could have been true in the case of Gypsy Rose and Dee Dee Blanchard, but in this case, it wasn't, and there was proof. This is where I think things are going to get a little bit spicy. Why does it matter? Why does it matter if Maya has or does not have CRPS? In this case, in this trial, why does it matter? This is not about the fact that Maya has or may not have CRPS. This is not about whether or not Beata was or was not abusing Maya by Munchausen by proxy, medically abusing, however you want to say it. This trial is about how Maya was treated while she was under the care of Johns Hopkins All Children's Hospital. And whether or not Maya was being abused by her mother, whether or not Maya had or has CRPS, Maya was treated horribly by Dr. Sally Smith and Miss Beatty, the social worker, while she was in the care of Johns Hopkins. That is what this case is about. It doesn't matter if Maya was abused. It doesn't matter if she had CRPS. What matters is the fact that everything that Sally Smith and Kathy Beatty did was wrong. The way that they handled the situation was wrong.
I don't know how you handle a situation like that. I can't tell you the right way to do it, but anybody watching this should be able to see that the way that the situation was handled was not right. Your gut is going to tell you if it was right or not. And the majority of the people are saying that the way Maya was treated, regardless of why she was in the hospital, it's not right. Simply because of how Dr. Sally Smith and how Kathy Beatty treated her. So, I'm not going to get into this argument of she had CRPS or she she didn't, she does or she doesn't. I'm not going to get into the argument of if Beata was medically abusing Maya or not. That's not what this trial coverage is about. That's not, that's not it. This trial coverage is about a young girl who was taken away from her family, who was mistreated, who was imprisoned in the hospital she was emotionally abused if nothing else by sally smith and by kathy Beatty. she has claims that doctors were inappropriate with her you can see the pictures that they took of maya against her will saying that it was for the court saying that it was for the medical records but it's not in the court records it's not in her medical records why were these pictures taken if they're not going to be in her medical records why is there no saved video footage except for two or three 10 second clips whenever a nurse or a doctor is in the room where she was being unknowingly surveillanced to see if she was faking or not it's not right. The way that things were handled is not right. Not everybody in that hospital was treating her badly. There has been a lot of testimony from the defense side that has shown that there were a lot of people in that hospital who were trying to take care of Maya, genuinely take care of Maya. And those people, I believe, had good intentions. They had pure intentions. I think that they really did want to help her. And I think that it sucks for them because they've been dragged into this whenever all they were doing was following the orders that they were given by Sally Smith and Kathy Beatty. And that's not... A lot of these nurses didn't... They didn't, you know, they weren't doing things that were, you know, out of line, I don't think, except for the one who was in the pictures, because she was helping hold Maya down while these pictures were being taken. So, she's an exception, but the one who, you know, took Maya's clothes home and washed them and brought them back for her, I don't think that that's too far out of line. I think that she really, truly, genuinely just wanted to be there for Maya and, and be supportive for her and be someone there for her. I think that whenever you have kids in a situation like that, kindness and showing them that you care and that you're there for them means more than they could ever possibly know. But then whenever you have all of these other people 
who are supposed to believe you calling you a liar and saying that you're faking it, you know, that doesn't help anything. Care and compassion is the way to go. Accusations and threats, not it. That's just not it. But that is going to conclude trial days 21 through 24. I do apologize that this episode is late, but I have just had a rough mental health week and I'm doing the best that I can. So I will do everything in my power to make sure that I have this this upcoming week's episode out on Saturday. Just a little trial update. Defense plans to rest their case either Tuesday evening or Wednesday morning. After that, I believe that the jury is going to be sent to, uh, they're going to be sent home on Wednesday night, and they will be set to deliberate on Monday. So, it's still going to be a little bit before we get an actual verdict, but it looks like things are going to be coming to an end as of Wednesday at the latest, potentially Tuesday. So we'll just have to see how things go. All right, guys, my voice is about to give out. So I am going to call it quits right now, but I hope that you guys have an incredible week. If you haven't already, please hit that follow button or that subscribe button, depending on where where you're listening from. And go ahead and leave me a five-star review because, you know, that really helps your girl out. All right, guys. Until next week, the record will so reflect.